0: Well, good morning. Wow, what a great start we have already had. Um, it's good to be gathered in the house of God with his people. For those of you keeping track at home, the record is old man winter one, each is house zero. Um, I, uh, Larry Radliff pointed out to me, I, I, I poked the bear. I, uh, I complained about winter long enough, and winter decided it had had enough of my mouth. And uh, but thankfully, guys, we are fine. We're doing well. Uh, the corner of our roof is a little busted up, but we're we're thankful God really protected our family. And uh, it was a good, good, good uh, time with the power outage and a broken snowblower and a tree on our roof and all that stuff. So, but hey, you know what? None of that really matters right now, right? It is good to be gathered here today in God's house. We are back doing what we do, right? We gather as God's people to yield our, our, our wills to the will of the Father as he is, reveals it through the pages of the scriptures. We, we yield and bend to his authority. We seek his wisdom. And as we do, the church is built up. It's edified. It's grown. It is strengthened. We find strength for today and hope for tomorrow as we continue week after week and day after day to seek God's wisdom and yield ourselves to it. And so we're going to trust that God will do that all again, right? Right? As we we begin, I want to call our attention, you don't have to turn there with me and you'll see, you'll understand eventually why I'm doing this, but I want to remind ourselves of a story from Daniel that we went through last spring. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he wanted somebody to interpret it, but he wasn't willing to tell anybody what the dream was and then Daniel came and he says this in Daniel chapter 2, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. And this image, mighty and and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. And the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, as you saw this image, king, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And that it, the stone, it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And as Daniel gives the interpretation, he explains that each of, the, each of the successive pieces of that statue, that image, the head and the, the body and the, the thighs and the feet, were successive kingdoms that were to rise after Babylon, right? And as he explains each successive kingdom, he concludes with this statement in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It, this kingdom, the one that God is setting up, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Last week, we jumped back into our study of the Gospel of Mark, and Simon did a tremendous job with the parable of the sower as he helped us to hear and understand Jesus' words. And they provided for us an explanation, if you remember, of why the response to Jesus' teaching is mixed. Why is it that some gladly receive it and others reject it outright? The difference isn't in information, the information was the same. The difference isn't in the messenger. The messenger was the same. So, why the difference in response? The difference in response is because faith existed in some people's hearts and did not in others. And when they heard the message of the kingdom, when they heard the seed that the sower was scattering, some heard it and received it with faith and saw it with eyes of faith, heard it with ears of faith as the word of God and bent towards it, yielded to it, received it gladly. And others, when they heard the same, hardened their hearts and turned away. Ultimately, the difference in those responses was seen in fruit. Does one produce one produced fruit, the one who turned and received, and one did not? This morning, we're going to pick up in verse 21 through 34, and what we'll find today are three additional parables, smaller stories. Thankfully, I gave Simon 20 verses to cover last week. That was a gift from me to him, Right. And to us as a congregation. But what we're going to find is that these are not brought up as some scattered gathering of loosely connected stories. They are actually a fuller expression and understanding of what we just heard last week. They're all kind of tied together. The Holy Spirit made sure that Mark included them here right where they are for a reason. So they don't bring some brand new information, but they further help the followers of Jesus to understand these mixed responses that they're seeing and the mixed reactions from people as they engage them with the message of Christ. And do we remember that message? In Mark chapter one, it was very clear. Jesus came and he preached. And what did he preach? That the kingdom of the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. It is near repent and believe in the gospel. That is his message. He travels the, the, the known world preaching that message. The church of Jesus today exists to stand on that message. The time has been fulfilled. The promises of God have, have, been, have come true. The kingdom of God is now close. It's near. It is at hand. And it's God's rule and reign is here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The only fitting response to that is to repent, to turn away from your former life and turn to Jesus as your Lord and King. That's it. There is the message. And as that message goes out, not everyone receives it. Just think about the book of Acts, right? Paul, think about the apostle Paul. He comes and he visits new towns. And he preaches the gospel and he explains to them who Jesus is from the scriptures that they all espouse. This should be a no brainer. You've got all the foundation work right there. Jesus came, he fulfilled all this stuff that you say is true and of God. Here's Jesus. You know, it's all, it's all, it's all fit. It all fits. Why don't you get it? And remember the responses Paul gets beaten, stoned, imprisoned lowered out of a city in a basket, chased to the next town and the next. It's not always received with faith. Sometimes it's received with great hostility. Some of you in this room, well, the first time you heard the gospel, wanted no part of it. And you heard it with hostility. Hostility. Some of you today, still, you think it's interesting. Wow, my wife has this faith thing, and I'm not so sure about it, but you're not yet ready to receive it and embrace it, and there's still a veiled measure of hostility towards it. Even today. And yet, along the way, with the hostility, we also meet people like Lydia, who comes to faith. We meet meet people like Lois and Eunice and Timothy and Onesimus and the demon-possessed slave girl in Philippi, the jailer and his whole family. And the world is turned upside down by this message of the gospel because those who receive it with faith get more of Christ. The distinction is not in the information. The distinction isn't even in the delivery. That should free us from a burden. The distinction is in the heart of the hearer. Is faith present or not? There is the distinction. How is the seed, the word, received? Today, as we continue, we're going to be looking at these three parables and we'll make a few observations concerning them. But before we do, let's read the passage. I should probably get there. I made a detour into Daniel, didn't even, wasn't really planning on that. So here we go Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. A quick word of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your word and its power. Lord, we could spend our entire lives plumbing its depths and never reach the bottom. I pray, Lord, that today you would open our eyes and our minds to the Spirit's illuminating work, that we would see you for who you are. Give us ears to hear today. And as we pray, we think of our sister, sister, Linda Liberty, who traveled to Alabama this week to be with her son, who suffered a really uh, really serious car accident with her, with her grandson as well and a friend. We pray for your blessing there, for your healing touch. God, be with Linda as she travels. We pray for a work of God in those situations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, a couple quick stories. Everybody loves a good story, right? First story is about the lamp in the basket. And Jesus opens with a really intriguing question. He says, what's a lamp for? Do you bring a lamp into a room and cover it up? I mean, it's a pretty straightforward question. I don't think you would answer it negatively. I think it was a pretty rhetorical thing that he was saying, right? The lamp is a common way back then to light the house. It wasn't a plug before electricity, right? It was a little pot, a clay pot with a handle on one end, and you would fill it with oil and you'd light the wick and it would burn and give light to the room. That's how they lit their homes. That's how some of us had to light our homes the last few days, right? As we're stumbling around the dark looking for clothes, wondering why we smell like sap and pine tar, right? we had to find a way to light our house. Now, how foolish would it have been of me on Friday evening after I raked my snow and got the the branches out? How foolish would it have been of me to come in, find a flashlight, and put it under the covers? What purpose would that serve? That's foolish. No, you put it on a stand. You elevate it so it gives light to the whole room. You you put it up in such a way so that what it provides is, is able to be seen by everybody in the room. And it's crazy in a dark room how little light is necessary to shine on the whole room, isn't it? No. The, Jesus asked the question, what do you do with the lamp? Do you bring it out and cover it up? Of course not. The answer is implied. It's clear. You bring out the lamp to light the room and when you have it, you, you hold it up. And you shine it so that all in the room can see. And for, because by it, by the lamp, all that is in the room is visible. And then he says, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. He's tying into the previous verse. He's saying, the light's purpose is to reveal what is hidden. The purpose of the light is to show us what was previously veiled by darkness. Darkness. John tells us that Jesus is the light of the world; that He has come to bring this illuminating presence, and that when we look at Jesus, we see we see grace and glory and truth. Paul tells us that we see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we understand Jesus is the light, the lamp that is to be seen. Christ is the light that has come. And by it, what was previously hidden and veiled is now clear and on display. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. The purpose of veiling it was so that now it can be unveiled in Jesus Christ. He's come and he's disclosing this mystery. Secret things are now revealed in the ministry of Jesus and he says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. Remember, we talked about this last week. We all have ears, but not all of us hear. And if you have children, you know this to be true. And if you men have wives, you know this to be true. They have this unique ability. Oh, that's, not, that's nothing bad. I mean, seriously, you act like, you act like it's not true. I'm just, I'm just preaching the truth. That is, Dave, yeah, I see that hand, right, right? They have this ability to sit in the room and hear everybody, but yet not really hear it, right? I have the ability to to hear my children and yet sometimes not actually hear what they're saying. We all have ears to hear, but not all of us hear by faith. And Jesus is saying to the crowd as he shares this story about the lamp, he says, look, if you get it, you get it. If you have ears to hear, then hear and listen. And then he says, pay attention to what I'm saying. Who are the ones who have ears to hear? The ones who have faith. The one whose hearts beat again with the life of God. The ones who the Spirit is illuminating and quickening and making alive together. If you have that, that twinge of faith in your heart, then listen. Pay attention. Submit to Jesus. Pay attention. He says, the measure you use... Will determine the measure that comes back to you. Well, what is that about? What is the, he's talking about the way we hear and receive. If you receive by faith, if you receive gladly what Jesus says and believe it, more will come to you. Remember what he's already said. The reason he uses parables is so that those who have more will be given, those who have not, even what they have will be taken. So if you have faith, and you hear the word of God, submit to it, yield to it, believe it, and you can rest assured that more of him will come to you. That's what he's saying. You'll get more knowledge, more understanding, more insight, more faith as you exercise your faith and follow him. And By a a converse statement, if you reject him and harden your heart and turn away from him, even what little you understand will be taken away. That's what he's saying. Snatched away like the birds of the air, maybe. Like the enemy that comes and steals it before it's able to take root. Oh, there's a lesson for the hearers today. Whatever God gives you, whatever movement He brings to you, whatever sense of His leadership you sense today, turn to it, yield to it, repent of sin, and trust it. And more will be given to you. Listen carefully. There's a sense of urgency here, isn't there? If the Lord is calling to you, listen to Him. Don't harden your hearts against Him, seek Him while He may be found. Here's the reality. The ability to hear and receive the word through faith is a gift. You can't make that happen, which is why the response to the gospel is so mixed. Because it's not my information or my delivery or my earnestness in my pleading that makes somebody believe and have faith. That is a gift that God provides. That's a fire that only he can light. You don't have the resources to do it. And when we hear his voice and turn away from it, we are making a really risky gamble. We are presuming that there will be another opportunity just like this. We are presuming that the Spirit of God will catch the fire of our hearts and burn bright once again some other time in the future. But if the Bible is true here, then that's a really risky gamble, isn't it? If we turn away and what little we have is taken from us, we are, we're not, those aren't good odds. Some of us, some of us are presuming upon God's grace that this opportunity will be here again sometime in the future. It may never come this way again. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to him as he prompts you. The first parable reminds us that the message of the gospel was veiled and hidden, but now in Jesus Christ, light has come. And what was hidden, this mystery, is now fully disclosed and on on display. Which, by the way, is exactly what the author of Hebrews said. God revealed himself in various times and in various ways through the message of the prophets and the law, and now in these last days he's revealed to us according to his Son. Which is exactly, by the way, what Paul says in Ephesians, that the mystery is now revealed in the gospel. And what is that mystery that Gentiles can be grafted into the vine? That we can know God. People who are apart from him can come to him by grace and through faith. Not by virtue of lineage and heritage, ethnicity like the Jewish people. No, we can now come to him freely by grace and through faith. That mystery was hidden in the past and now in Jesus it's revealed and open. Jesus comes to bring light to the message of the gospel. And the light is supposed to shine. That's what it does. And you and I, Jesus says, we, the church, are the light of the world. So let your light shine before men. Our calling is to let the light of the gospel shine in our lives. What sense does it make for you and I to be lamps hidden under a pile of blankets in the corner of the room? It's useless, it lacks purpose. It's not doing what it's designed to do. There is one function for the light. It only has one thing it does. It shines. That's it. Do that and let's do it well, right? So the mystery is that in, in the light of Christ, what was previously hidden is now revealed. Secondly, he tells this mystery of the seed. Let me tell you another story, he said. The kingdom of God is like, it's as if a man should go about scattering seed on the ground. Okay, now we're tying into the first parable that we heard last week. Should instantly call to mind that one. Now, where the first one was used to explain the mixed reactions, this one seems to focus on a different aspect of the kingdom of God, namely the mystery of its growth. You see, the man scatters seed on the ground. The seed is the word of God, the good news of the kingdom, that God's rule and reign are now here and close to us in the person of Jesus, that by submitting to him and yielding to him, we can be brought into the kingdom and family of God. Okay. The man scatters the seed. The time has been fulfilled, the kingdom's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. But once he sows it, what does he do? He sleeps and he rises He goes about living his normal life. And the seed sprouts and grows. The sower of the seed does his part that he puts the seed in the ground and then he waits. The act of sowing, the act of planting is an act of faith. Those of you who are gardeners know this. Because even though we work diligently... Even though we employ the most productive and effective methods in all of our agricultural pursuits, we still lack the power to make the seed germinate. We can make sure that the conditions are right for germination. We can get it at the right temperature. We can make the soil perfect. We can mix it with all the right nutrients. We can grow it under a nice lamp in our basement. But if some mystery of life doesn't spark in the seed. It just stays there. And the reality is, we can, we can produce the conditions, but we cannot make that spark. We don't have the ability. So the farmer sows his seed and then he waits. He waits for what? For God to provide life. And how does God provide life? Life when, when the farmer sows the seed, he sows it for a purpose for the harvest. right? unless you're, unless you're a weirdo, you're not in it just for the process. You want to see the flower. you want to gaze on its beauty. You want to eat the fruit. You want to have an ear of corn and a baked potato on your plate, right? I mean, maybe some of you are sick people and just enjoy the pain, but the seed is designed to bring the harvest. It's an act of faith, and we wait. But the reality is, I don't sow the seed today and reap the harvest tomorrow. No, no, no. The process of growth is a long, drawn-out season. Sometimes more than one season. Sometimes to really reap an abundant harvest, it takes years and years of growing and pruning and praying. You see, the growth process that Jesus describes, at first it's just a single blade that pops out of the ground. Those of you who are gardeners know this. You know the joy of checking on your gardens every day, and then all of a sudden, you come out one day, and look, among the weeds and the little sprouts is now something that looks a little different. And you see that first sign of life, You don't cut it down and eat it. You celebrate that there's a sign of life. At first, it's just one small blade. And then a little bit later, it grows and grows and grows. It gets taller and fuller. Buds and flowers developed. Not yet ready. Not quite time yet. The fruit isn't ready for the harvest. It's just more signs of life. But the harvest is coming when the grain is ripe. When the peas are ready when the corn can be picked. It is coming. There's a great day of harvest that is coming, a day of reckoning, so to speak, when the laborers will reap the harvest and take it into the storehouse. You see, this parable isn't just about seeds. This is about the kingdom of God. And he says, the growth of the kingdom is like this man who scatters seed. Something that stands out for me today, it should be encouragement for the church. Especially to those of us who have wrestled with what we like to call slow growth. We don't see the fruit that we think we should see right now, and we get discouraged. We get discouraged because we're, we're discipling somebody, right, Gail? We're discipling somebody, and we're not seeing the fruit that we want, and we begin to think, is something wrong? Are they not quite getting it? Am I doing something wrong? We're parents, and we don't see the same convictions that we hold after walking with Jesus for close to 30 years in the lives of our children, and we think, is something wrong? No, they just need a couple decades to catch up. It's a process. I mean, don't compare them to you today. Compare them to you at 15, and then see what's happening. They're probably doing pretty good, right? Right? It's a process. It's growth. Small signs of life here and there. They're not quite ready just yet to be harvested. But are we seeing the signs of life? As we deal with lingering issues and wrestling with a temper, as we fight addictions and struggle with newfound faith, as we figure out what it means to walk in the way of Jesus, are we still seeing signs of life? Even though we're not as fruitful as we hope to be one day, is the blade of grass there? Is there growth there? Is the ear visible? Are there places where the life of God is being brought, manifest in our lives? Then celebrate those. I left left my book down here. J.C. Ryle, who apparently Simon and I both read pretty regularly, wrote in his commentary some 163 years ago about this very thing. And he says this, if I can find it on page 59. Here it is. Talking about the slow growth, he said, The work of grace in like manner goes on in the heart by degrees. The children of God are not born perfect in faith or hope or knowledge or experience. Their beginning, the children of God, as they come to faith, their beginning is generally a day of small things. They see in part their own sinfulness. They see Christ's fullness, the beauty of holiness. But for all that, the weakest child in God's family is a true child of God yet. With all his weaknesses, with all of his infirmities, he's still alive. The seed of grace has really come up in his heart. Though at present, it be only in the blade He is alive from the dead. And the wise man says a living dog is better than the dead lion. Ecclesiastes 9.4 The weakest member of the of uh, the family of God is still a child through faith. The signs of life may still be present, although not fully ripened. That should encourage us. When we struggle, the growth of the kingdom of God in people's lives is a series of fits and starts. And lest we get all high and mighty, let's remember that you and I still struggle too. Our tempers still get the best of us. Our lack of faith. Sometimes, for example, you might have to move a log out of your driveway. (laughs) And you might be wondering why this thing fell on your house. And then you go to start your snowblower and it doesn't work. And it might, there might be a temptation. I mean, just hypothetically speaking, there could be a temptation for this dear brother in the Lord to get discouraged in that. Right? We're, we're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We might want to stop judging one another in that way. And allow the grace of God to develop And nurture the signs of life. Isn't that what the gardener does? The gardener doesn't get discouraged when the ear develops. The gardener makes sure the conditions are right for it to continue. It weeds, it plucks, it waters, it prays. It fertilizes. If the birds are after it, it puts a net over it. Like the gardener, here's what happens. The sower sows the seeds and waits and then he responds to all the signs of life he sees. Moms and dads, you sow the seed of the gospel in faith and then you respond to the signs of life you see and you heap encouragement where it's good and you heap a loving warning where it's needed. You're discipling somebody. You see a sign of life. You overwhelm them with encouragement for the signs you see. Give them the conditions for that to grow. Respond to the signs of life and wait for the harvest. But the reality is, dear friends, you and I probably aren't the ones picking the harvest. So set the expectation a little lower, okay? Not all of us get to reap the harvest. Some of us plant, some of us water, some of us tend. Only God can produce that in people's lives. I'm off my notes, I'm sorry. Our ministry doesn't change. We follow the example of Christ, we sow the seed, and then we respond to the signs of life. Pastoral ministry is the same way. And if I could just offer a word of confession here. As I've seasoned in the noonday sun of my ministry, which I can say now, I'm like halfway through, right? Um, Something struck me. that, That early on, early on the idealism of what the church should be, the idealism of what the gospel should produce in people's life, discouraged me when I didn't see the fruit. But over time, I've come to be thankful for the small signs of life that you see. Because one day and another day and another day of that small thing ends up reaping, bearing a great harvest. And maybe not in this precise season. You know, you sow in the spring, but you rarely, rarely do you reap in the spring. You have to get through the dog days of summer first. It's seasons of growth. Little by little, faithfulness here, encouragement there, and then the harvest comes. Here's the thing. We don't understand how or why the kingdom of God grows. And to, to act like we do is to drastically misunderstand the depravity of the human heart and the glorious mystery of grace. Somewhere, In the depths of a man's soul, the fire of the Spirit of God catches the tinder of a dead heart and burns. And you and I are completely powerless to make that happen. Utterly, completely dependent on the work of God. Which should drive us to prayer a little more, shouldn't it? That God would answer and provide. All right. Third story, he says, what else, how else should we describe this kingdom of God that is so difficult for us to understand, so mysterious, so varied in its response? To what should we compare it and what parable should we use? He says, it's like a mustard seed, like a grain of the mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden. The mustard seed is the smallest of seeds. It's tiny. That expression is used in Jewish literature to describe something insignificant, something minuscule, not just in terms of size, but in terms of impact. Something that won't amount to anything. Unimportant and insignificant. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus says is like a mustard seed. It looks insignificant. It appears to those who are watching as something that's unimportant. It appears that it's here today and gone tomorrow. Remember Gamaliel in the, in the Sanhedrin? He says, listen guys, if this thing's of God, it'll stand. But likely what's going to happen, it's going to fall away like all the rest of them did. Unimportant, cast aside, insignificant. It's not going to amount to much. You see, the kingdom of God The rule and reign seemed small, but is growing. Something happens to this insignificant seed of the kingdom of God. This insignificant mustard seed in Jesus' story. He says, it starts out small, insignificant, you might not think much of it. But when it grows to maturity, it becomes the largest in the field so large does its reach extend, so strong and sturdy are its branches that the birds of the air flock to it and seek refuge in its wings. The insignificant, seemingly unimportant thing has now become a source of refuge in life to all who would gather there. This is like the kingdom of God, he says. And he says, he continues to teach them in parables as they were able to hear them. To the crowds, he teaches in parables. To his disciples, he calls them aside and he gives them a further explanation. This method is perfectly in line with what we heard last week. He teaches in parables without much of a follow-up and says things like, if you have ears to hear, let him hear, which is essentially saying, if you get it, you get it. I'll see you later. But to his disciples, to the ones who have, to the ones who respond in faith, to the ones who yield to him and receive the word, He gives more. The same is true today. All right. With that, the section ends. And all of that teaching and yelling and spitting and excitement that we come to leaves us with one glaring question in our hearts, right? So what? What does that mean? You just told me three stories about a lamp some seeds and a bush what does that mean how am, what am i supposed to do with that today how, well, i'm going to work tomorrow i have to get on the school bus tomorrow and face ridiculous behavior i have to my boss is a jerk you don't understand i'm going home to a spouse who doesn't share my faith and every day is a struggle my son is addicted i've got what how is this going to help me i am so glad you asked that question so glad The Bible is relevant. It's not just true and inerrant, mystical and majestic. It is relevant to you and I right here today, every word of it. Every word. Here's some things that I think some meaning we can draw from this passage. One, he is not hidden. He's not hidden. He, Jesus, and the message of his gospel is that lamp in the first story, it's been revealed. It's been uncovered. What was previously hidden is now clear and out in the open. A mystery in these last days has been shown to us in Jesus. And the measure that we use in that first story is our faith. The application is straightforward. Jesus is not hidden, so turn to him with what you see as clear. Respond in faith. Do not harden your heart against him. Don't harden your heart. To do so is to presume that you're going to have another opportunity like this someday in the future. Today is the day of salvation. And when we turn into him, when we lean into him, when we receive that seed, he gives us more. And when we turn away, even what little we knew is taken from us. Yield to him in faith. Secondly, today, the growth of the kingdom is a mystery to the sower. For the one who scatters seeds, it is an act of faith. We trust God that growth will come. The sower's job doesn't change, though. We mentioned it earlier. Here's what the sower is to do he sows the seed and he responds to signs of life. That's his job. That's what he does, that's our job. We are sowers in the kingdom. We follow Jesus' example. We sow the seed, the word of the kingdom. We announce that the time has come, that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. And then we, we nurture where we see signs of life. We have the follow-up questions with the one who is wrestling with his worldview. We talk to somebody who's not sure what the Bible teaches about church life and the pursuit of holiness. We talk to them and try to help them understand what God's word says about the nature of human sexuality and identity. We work hard to respond to the signs of life and pour water on those seeds and trust that God brings fruit. He cultivates, he waters, he weeds, he tends to the plant. That's what the sower does, but God responds by giving fruit. Furthermore, keep in mind that this mysterious growth of the kingdom in us, in us it's ourselves, is a process of seasons. And there will be seasons of quick and immediate growth there will be times of stumbling. A rainy week threatens to flood out the plants while they're young. A summer hailstorm batters the stalks, but the the mysterious growth of the kingdom still plods along in our hearts. The mystery of growth from dust to glory is indeed just that, a mystery. And if you're experiencing a season of sunshine and warmth, metaphorically of course, if you're experiencing a season of sunshine and warmth, then rejoice and receive it and lean into Jesus. And if old man winter's dropping trees on your house and your pet's heads are falling off, then simply trust that God will at some day bring that to joy as well. You may be here this morning, all kidding aside, you may be here this morning and you might be walking through a great season of struggle. Hailstorm doesn't begin to describe it it feels like you're gonna be beaten and battered by those storms, then my, my encouragement to you today is sink your roots deep into the grace of Jesus. Turn away from sin, turn away from the enemy's lies, pursue the good fight of faith, refuse to believe him, and trust Jesus. Thirdly today, the kingdom of God may have started small, for sure. The backside of nowhere, a couple thousand years ago, with a Jewish carpenter, turned prophet, claiming to be the son of God, a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors. It may have started small and insignificant, but eventually it will replace all the kingdoms of this world. It's important to remind ourselves of that today. Do you know why? Because today in America, we are immersed in a secular culture. That simply means that the foundation, the foundation of our worldview as a culture, as a people, Those foundations are not biblical. They are humanistic. The bedrock of faith in a creator God who lovingly reveals himself in a moral law and prophetic promises, fulfilling them in a savior, that foundation is not where we begin. And because of that, we hear daily of failing churches, of declining participation in the family of God. We hear of the rise of the nuns. No, not N U N, N O N E. None. What's your refi- religious affiliation? Catholic, Protestant, none. The rise of the nuns on all the surveys. We look around us and we see, okay, secularism is winning, biblical Christianity is failing. It's easy to look around and believe that it's over. It's easy to look around and believe that we are the last vestiges of hope for the empire, right? It's easy to look around and believe that God's dead. That the light of the gospel that was once the great force of Western civilization has been extinguished. But according to the promises of God, in his timing, and according to his plan, we can be assured of this one thing, that the kingdom of God triumphs over all the kingdoms of this world. We can be assured of its continued spread, its covering. We can be assured that in a mysterious and a miraculous way, this kingdom will one day overtake all the other kingdoms. Secularism isn't going to win. Just for those of you for grins and chuckles this morning, it's a failing system. It's doomed to collapse in upon itself. The hyper-focus of an individual's freedom and autonomy, coupled with evolutionary theory, which is the foundation... Survival of the fittest produces a conflicted and unstable foundation. Hear me out. Secularism wants a kingdom with no king. They want the virtues of Christ's kingdom. Feed the poor, lift the burden, heal the sick, cure the lame, set the captives free. I heard about that one time. But they want it without Jesus. Friends, just in case you don't see it today, the basic foundation of that worldview, that you are the master and ruler of your domain, is in conflict with the call to lift the burden of the poor. Because evolutionary thought teaches survival of the fittest. And if we really believe a secular worldview, what we believe is, I don't have to care about anybody but me. I don't have to lay down my life for anybody. I don't have to sacrifice for anybody. Secularism doesn't explain the image of God in man. Secularism cannot explain the plight or, or, or the desire to lift human suffering. Secularism would, would do better to explain why the, why the strong actually kill and eat the weak, not lift their burden secularism will fall in on itself because it lacks no story it lacks no purpose it lacks no meaning my friends you might think that the church is in trouble and maybe we are who knows but the kingdom of god will endure and this cultural moment that you're in right now your friends are drowning for meaning and purpose And they have no overarching story to tell them that they are created in the image of an invisible God who loved them so enough that he revealed himself to them in the law and the prophets, fulfilled that law in the person of Jesus and died to set them free. They have no idea. And they're looking for purpose everywhere else. And here we come, the light of the world, sowing seed as liberally as we can. And what can we expect to happen? I believe we can expect Christ's kingdom to experience a great revival and harvest. As the emptiness of this world shows itself for what it is, and the hope of the glory of God in the face of Jesus lifts the burden of the oppressed and the poor and the broken, the addicted, the discouraged, the downcast. The same way he did for me the same way he did for you. I am way off topic today, but here's the point. It may feel like the church is going under. It may feel like the church of Jesus is being forced into a position of defeat, but the main opponent we face today is a straw man and he's coming down. Here in the midst of a confused generation, we stand holding forth the word of life. Are we doing our jobs? Are we doing what we're called to do? Is the light shining in your heart? Oh, that's a tough one, isn't it? Are you letting the light of Christ shine in you so that other people might hear and understand the truth of the gospel? Are you sowing seed as liberally as you can? Like that guy last week, just scattering. Some's on the some fell on the road, some fell on the rocks. He didn't care, he's just tossing it everywhere. Are you scattering the seed as far and wide as you can, trusting that God will take some of it and bring fruit? Are you trusting in the mystery of the kingdom growth in you and in others? My friends, I love you guys. Do not give in to the lies of this world. The church isn't dead. The kingdom of God isn't failing. The kingdom of God is the only sure thing to hold on to in this world. Jesus Christ is not our crutch, my friends. He's our anchor. He's the bedrock and foundation. He's the cornerstone of our lives. He's coming. Are you ready? The harvest is coming. Are you ready? And when he comes, will he find you busy about the father's business? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of the gospel in our lives. Thank you for our church. Thank you for what you're doing here. God, thank you that we can't figure out how and why this, the kingdom grows. It just grows. You bring life. You bring hope. Lord, I pray for our church family. God, that you would give us faith to believe, that we would lean in and repent and trust you and walk in courage and faith. Lord, I pray for those here who are wrestling with faith, still wondering what to make of Jesus. I pray that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear and let their hearts catch flame. Help them to respond in faith and trust you. And Lord, I pray that we would, as a church body, Be so passionately moved by your love for us that we are compelled into this world around us to shine the light of Jesus, to sow the seed of the kingdom, and to rejoice wherever we see signs of life. God, bring a harvest in our hearts and bring a harvest through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.